Welcome to the View from the Penalty Box podcast with Cam Connor. Classic hockey stories from one of hockey's toughest enforcers. Episode number nine. I'm Cam, along with my son, Chris Connor. So we have to thank everyone for the reviews. We're starting to notice some more reviews, some more uh, five stars, if that's how you feel. And we're starting to get some more feedback. And you can get feedback into us at viewfromthepenaltybox at gmail.com. You can also tweet my dad on Twitter at CamConnorNHL. So, Dad, I'm going to read you one of your emails that you received. It's a nice one. Those are always good. Uh, so it says, Hey, Cam, I love your podcast. I still remember seeing your goal against the Toronto Maple Leafs in the 70s. I think it was in overtime in the playoffs. I was a big Canadians fan and remember you jamming the net. Love the Canadians in the 70s. How is my memory? Your new fan, Ken. Ken, you're right on, buddy. That was uh, my 15 minutes of fame in the NHL, and you got it right on. Thanks very much for the positive feedback, buddy. And we also have a question for you that's um, probably right up your alley. We have a question from Chris, who wants to know if you have any tips on how to fight. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's an interesting question, how to fight. You know, honest to God, even as a kid, when I was street fighting, in junior hockey, in pro, I was always scared to death. For me, I would throw... I didn't like to grab. I would throw with both hands and just like a machine gun, just keep them coming. Quite often, when I fought, guys would like to reach out with one hand to grab you, then start to punch. And for myself, for the most part, if you if you wanted to do that with me, I've already hit you at least three times when you're trying to grab me. I would say when you fight, just throw them and lean into your punches, buddy, and good luck to you. So when you fought, I know you never really backed down from a fight, but did you ever fight with someone that you knew wasn't a fighter, so maybe you took it easy on them or you tried to give them a chance? Well, you know what? Uh, You're right about that. When I started to fight, like, I wanted to beat you, and that was the end of the conversation. But most of the time, if you were a good guy on the ice and you didn't do cheap shot and you weren't mouthy, I I wouldn't fight those kind of guys because I know, for example... Let's go back to the WHA when Winnipeg Jets had a team full of Swedes, very skillful, but they're not fighters and they don't play an aggressive game. And let's say when you played a team like Minnesota Fighting Saints back in the day or, or you know, in the NHL when you played Philadelphia Flyers, we had guys that when you took on teams like the Winnipeg Jets, they played like they were six foot five with 230 pounds. They'd run the Swedes and challenge them and be a big, tough guy. And then when we were playing the Minnesota Fighting Saints, which was a team of fighters, the Flyers, tough, tough squad. Where were those guys those nights, right? So did I ever, you know, when I, there, usually I wouldn't fight those guys that, that weren't fighters because uh, they're not looking for it. They're just trying to play the game of hockey. And the only time I remember there was a guy, his name was, I believe it was George Lyle, played in the World Hockey for New England Whalers. 
I he was a big boy, but I ran him every chance I could, every chance. And back in those days, you could hit players from behind. I'd charge into the corners, and he'd have the puck. I'd hammer into him, which was legal. And this one time, I was coming at him full tilt, and I, I don't know why. Something said to me, you know, I'd give the guy a break. He hit him so hard every single time, so I, I, I slowed down. And he just reacted. He brought his arms up to kind of cushion me hitting him. But what he did is he butt-ended me in the mouth. And he split my lip wide open like a barn door, you know, like a saloon door. Cut my tongue. I wiggled my teeth every which way. And uh, to this day, I still kind of remember that. Uh, they take you into, your, into the trainer's dressing room. And for the most part, they never, ever give you freezing because it's already numb. I don't know the qualifications of this team doctor, how good they are, but this guy was stitching my lip and putting them back together. And all I could think about is I told him, Doc, I said, you better line my lips up. And so as soon as he finished stitching me in the visiting team's dressing room, I went into the bathroom and looked in the mirror to make sure my lips were equal. So that's about the only time that I could think of right now when uh, it was somebody who really wasn't a fighter and I kind of slowed down, but I paid a price for it. And we have a couple updates from previous episodes or questions, follow-ups. So a lot of people like that story about Tony with the short leg, but I guess I did a bad job in asking you what happened to him. I know you got traded or went down to the minors, but what happened over well, the following years and... Yeah. How- well, let me just cut you off right there. You know what? I can't answer that because uh, when I got sent to the minors, that was the last time that I saw Tony. Uh, they did bring me up in the playoffs, but if I remember correctly, all our practices were in Madison Square Gardens. If we had any back at Rye, I never crossed paths with Tony again. That was that was the end of my story. That was the last time I saw Tony is when he told me that... Uh, you know, none of the Rangers would even say hi to him except for Ron Grusher and I. So, God bless him. And there's another question from Marcus, who must have been doing his research because he said that you also were assistant coach for the New Haven Nighthawks. So he's curious yeah. how that happened. Well, you know, I had uh, really got hurt in training camp. Team orthopedic surgeon and Craig Patrick, they... Greg Patrick thought I was faking my injury. I couldn't even walk. I had to get Anders Hedberg, one of the players, to actually put my skates on. Because some days you can't walk, but you can skate. So I was willing to try. I was out pretty well the whole year. I I was hobbled. So my career has come to an end, um, and I had another year left, I believe. And they said, well, did you want to go help on the farm team? in New Haven, Connecticut. So I said I would, and Nick Beverly was the coach, and this farm team was owned between the Rangers and LA Kings. I went down there, and I kept my mouth shut. Nick Beverly played a lot longer in the NHL than I did, and so out of respect for him, I didn't, in my opinion, didn't think he was running the practices very well, but I kept my mouth shut. And we didn't make the playoffs that year, and with five games to go, he said, you know what, I had enough of these guys. You coach for now on. I'm not even going on the ice. Well, I I, I really, to this day, believe that was my calling. I, I really wanted to be a coach. And uh, I went when I got five games, we took on John Paddock, who was, I believe his team was, I want to say, 
Maine Mariners. They were first place team. We played them once or twice. We beat them in their own rink, and we won all five games. And I think if I had a strength of the coach, it was a motivator. And I honestly, honestly wanted to see the guys do well. It wasn't, you know, I wanted to make a career, so I had better do well. I loved the players. I, I treated them like individuals. I took them aside, and I made sure I told them of their strengths and how to get better. And each one of those guys, um, and George McPhee played for those five games for me. And when we were done, George just said to me that I was just an outstanding coach. So I, I really wanted to keep coaching, but I guess it wasn't in the cards, Chris. But yeah, I did coach for a little while, American League. And again, it was just for the fact that I was hurt and uh, I couldn't play, so they sent me down. And how did that team end up doing that year? Well, they, like I said earlier, they didn't make the playoffs, but we won our last five games when I coached. And, you know, we had the same talent, but I think I was just able to motivate them. I know that some coaches that don't have the ability to motivate players, I used to see in the paper and they'd say, well, they're professional hockey players. They should be able to motivate themselves. Well, you know, that's easy to say. But when you play 80, 90, 100, 110 games a year, depending how many exhibition games, how, how far you go in the playoffs, it's a long year. And as a player, you do your very, very best to get up for every game. But if there's a coach like a Herb Brooks that was a motivator, it helps so very much. And the coaches that say it's not up to them, we should be able to motivate ourselves, that's because they don't know how to motivate I think that's the reason that, uh, you know, we didn't make the playoffs that year, but I think the reason I won my five games. Now, that doesn't mean I'm going to go 70, 80 games without a loss, but I think I was on to something. I put a lot of emotion into it. I cared about the guys, and I was being honest with them, and I gave them confidence. I've talked about that many times before, confidence. And you pat these guys on the back, and you tell them the truth and what they what the strengths they got? We had one guy we called him Gogo on the farm team whose name I can't remember his 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 name, but we called him Gogo who could skate him. Oh, he could skate faster than anybody I ever knew. But he didn't believe he was as good as he was. But you know, I talked to him. I talked to him that there's nobody as fast as him, and he would just if you could just use that speed to get to the outside around the D, you would help yourself and the team. This guy got so motivated, he did outstanding. And and that's just what you got to do with each player. Figure out what they bring to the party, what they do well, and make them feel good about themselves, and positive things will happen. So the last question I have for you before we talk about your time with the Edmonton Oilers is something you posted on Twitter. And by the length of how many tweets <laughs> it has, maybe Twitter is not the best venue for this, so I thought you could follow up on the podcast. So I'll read what you tweeted. And so you wrote, One of the best ways to help the NHL grow is to have better media training, public speaking available to its players, especially the stars. Speak with enthusiasm, talk with more emotion, and give better quotes. Hard to compete with the charismatic stars of the other big sports. We need more Phil Esposito, Jeremy Roenick, even Mark Messier. Mark would say, I guarantee we will win, and then he gets a hat trick. Some of it comes down to nationality. Canadian players aren't used to playing before big crowds while growing up and learning the sport. When I played in Houston, high school football had thousands of spectators and their players would be front page news. 
Canadians don't have that. The young superstars do their talking on the ice, but I hope as they mature, their personalities come out, which ultimately helps them transcend beyond just the hockey media and industry and will help grow the sport we all love. So any thoughts on that? Well, I think what I was trying to say, you know, talking and writing, putting things in writing, doesn't always come across the same way. And really what I was trying to say is when you look at football and you put the camera on the sidelines and the guys are doing their dances and jumping in front of the camera and you see basketball and and you hear the quotes from certain players, you know, they all have something to say and they think it's important and, you know, probably is. But when you look at the game of hockey, traditionally, you know, at one time in hockey, probably 85 to 90% of the hockey players in the NHL were Canadian. Obviously, now there's a lot of other nationalities representing their, their country in the game of hockey. But I can only speak about Canadians, for example. You know, growing up, nobody paid attention to any of us uh, you know, you know, maybe today some of the really like Connor McDavid, everybody knew who he was when he played junior, and maybe Lemieux and Crosby. There's exceptions, but for the most part, when you're playing junior hockey, nobody made a big deal about you, and it wasn't until you actually made it that people paid attention to you. And then when you look, a perfect example is when I was playing in the World Hockey in Houston. There was a high school football teams, and this high school had something like 400 to 500 students attending the school, but their football team drew over 15,000 a game. And then you look at the sports the next day, these 15 and 16-year-olds, 17-year-olds, they're on the front page of the sports for the Houston paper, and they're made a big deal of, and I'm sure when they go to school, everybody's patting them on the back and they've got a lot of confidence and they got the world by the tail. Whereas a Canadian athlete, nobody really, for the most part, paid too much attention to you till you made it. And I remember an American fan once said to me, boy, I love you Canadian athletes. And I asked him why, because you guys aren't conceited. He said, you know, some of our athletes think too much of themselves in their showboating all the time. And you Canadians, you just play the game and work hard and you're not showboating. Well, I think we can learn a little bit more from the American counterpart, the athletes. I, I, I do believe, you know, I named like an Esposito or a Messier who would go out and speak very well to the media, make predictions, not be afraid to say what's on their mind, even if it was a little controversial. They had enough confidence uh, to, they didn't try to hurt anybody's feelings, but they didn't care if they did. And so I just think that in the game of hockey, most hockey players are pretty easygoing. They don't try to hog the spotlight in any capacity. And maybe what I'd like to see is some of the hockey players with personalities. I mean, you look at Subban. I remember when he was playing for the junior Canadian national team. Holy cow, I used to think he was a hot dog. Every time I looked, he was doing something to try to get on the camera. He would be the last person in for the team pitchers, and he'd go sliding into the front to make sure he was in the front row. And then he'd stay on very last, and he'd go around the ice with the flag draped around him. He did things to try to get himself publicized even more. And he speaks very well. He's got confidence. And, you know, when somebody like him 
who has that confidence and that showmanship, when you can back it up, then you really can't knock a guy like that. And I guess what I'm saying is I'd like to see some more Canadians step forward and have a little bit more of a personality when they talk to the press. Thanks, Dad. So now we'll go to the topic of this episode, which is your time with the Edmonton Oilers. And you joined the team in their first year in the NHL uh, in 1979. Yeah, sounds right. right. So I'll let you talk about how you joined the team, a little bit of background information, because the Oilers were actually part of the WHA before, and they... Do you know what their name was before yeah, the Edmonton Oilers? They were, they were, they were, they're always called Edmonton Oilers. Nope. No? Nope. They started Alberta as... Alberta Oilers. Yes. Oh, correct. Yeah, right. yeah. That's right. Okay, so I'll let you talk about that. Well, with the Oilers, I had played against the Alberta Oilers or the Edmonton Oilers for about four years when I was in the World Hockey. They had a tough team. I showed up. I played a good physical game. I was young. I had no fear back in those days. I was in good shape. What what team were you playing for when you were Well, there was two teams. One was called Phoenix Roadrunners, which I was just turned 20, 21, 22. Then I went, went to Houston Arrows for another couple of seasons. So those two teams, Houston Arrows and Phoenix Roadrunners, we would take on, you know, the team from Edmonton. Glenn Sather at the time was one of the players. And then he became, if I'm not mistaken, and it might be, I thought he was a player coach for a while and then just coach GM. Glenn had time to evaluate the various players in the world hockey. At that time, I was in Montreal. We had uh, a strong, strong powerhouse team in Montreal. It won the Stanley Cup four years in a row. The four world hockey teams were now going to merge with the NHL. And the Edmonton Oilers was one of the teams. I got a call from Glenn Sather in Montreal just letting me know that I was the very first person chosen in the NHL merger draft with the World Hockey, and he made me their number one pick. And so that was definitely an honor. Glenn said that I should go and buy a house in the summer in Edmonton, that I was going to be in Edmonton for a long time. So he had a lot of confidence in me, and I was uh, pretty excited about coming to a new team. And so that summer, I think I told you in Montreal, I missed the last uh, playoff series for the Stanley Cup, the Stanley Cup Finals. I had a food poisoning. It was in my system for nine days, and it caused me a lot of problems. You know, when they finally diagnosed it, uh, not the flu, but rather food poisoning, they gave me pills, and I started to feel way better. But then probably within three weeks after the season, I started hobbling. I, uh, I had an aching back. I had uh, like a joint on my small toes, the middle of my chest, uh, one of my fingers. If you just barely touched it or struck it, it was major pain. I had, had to walk kind of hunched over. I started having a lot of problems before I came to Edmonton all summer long. And usually in the summer, I was somebody that dedicated my time. I would put in every single day, two hours to work out. And it was a pleasure working out. I I was always grateful doing what I did for a living. And hard work was never anything that I ever shied away from. But with this ailment, um, I didn't know what was wrong now. Now, I've left Montreal 
And I bought a house in Edmonton. And I'm in Winnipeg pretty well for the summer, where my family and the wife's family lives. And I was hobbling. I wasn't able to do my traditional wind sprints and weightlifting and boxing. I would box with buddies in the off-season, so I'd be sharp for the season. I probably saw four, five different orthopedic surgeons over the summer trying to figure out what was wrong with me and it was so interesting like they all put me on many different pills they say oh you better get an mri and you need some x-rays and it was just uh we just couldn't find out you know they put me on a pill it was called butazolazine and it was an anti-inflammatory and it was so powerful that you were only supposed to have one prescription of it and nobody told me that. I kept getting the damn thing refilled. And it, it was so powerful that it made me bleed when I sat on the toilet. It was blood pouring out of me. It was a tough summer. So the only thing that I could do, Chris, before I went to Edmonton's training camp was I'd go to Olympic-sized pool daily and I'd try swimming. That's about the only thing I could do. Swimming is, is very good for, you know, cardiovascular. But it didn't... Uh, it's still, there was a lot that I was missing. So I showed up a couple of weeks before training camp. We had a team baseball game, and that's the first time I had seen Glenn Sather all since the fall, since, since the end of hockey season. And he looked at me and he said, what's wrong with you? And I told him I, I, this story I just told you. He said, so you were damaged goods when we got you? I said, yeah. He goes, well, I'm going to have to send you back to Montreal. I said, Glenn, please don't do that. I said, I bought a house in Edmonton. I sold my house in Montreal. They didn't want me. They let me go. I want to be an Edmonton oiler. He sent me to, he said, well, I want you to go see a doctor. And I'll never forget this gentleman's name. His name was Dr. Kidd. Dr. Kidd was about, if I remember correctly, about 82 years old. And I went up to see this gentleman and he did various tests on me. And then he said, you know what? He said, in all my years practicing, I've only seen one other case like this. So he needs pills to counter the chromosome problem I had. So now I'm starting to feel better. Training camp had already started. And because I was a little weak and still recovering from my problems over the summer, I was probably, well, I was the 60th guy in training camp to get their gear. The guys have already been skating at least seven days. And they skated all summer. And so finally, when I got cleared to play, the trainer got a hold of me. And I came down to the dressing room and he gave me my gear and he gave me little kid shin pads that didn't even fit. And I said, hey, this, these don't fit. I can't wear these. And he said, well, just go skating today. And we're cutting a whole bunch of players today and I'll give you a brand new set of equipment. And I said, well, okay. So I get on the, the ice for the first time. You know, since uh, I played with the Canadians, I didn't skate all summer. And within one minute, they said, okay, we're having a scrimmage now. Cam, you're in the starting lineup. So, okay. And I line up at left wing. And there was a defenseman on the other side, uh, the other scrimmage team named Lee Fogelin. And Lee had an outstanding career with the Edmonton Oilers. And he was always in shape. He was always doing push-up. Big, strong boy. He wasn't a mean guy. But he was strong and solid on his feet. Puck went into his corner. I go rushing in there. And we collided. He knocked me over like a bowling ball. And I went in the fetal position, flying into the boards. My kneecap got exposed and bang, right into the boards with my kneecap. And it, it caused a lot of problems. My knee swelled up and I had to go off the ice 
So the I, I remember I, I left the building. I was in tears. I said, after all my problems this summer, now I'm finally back. Now I'm hurt again. Well, the trainers took a look at me the next day and they decided that I had a bruised kneecap. So they had me sitting on these weight machines where you lift up weights with your legs. And it was pretty painful, but he said, no, no, push through the pain barrier. You just got bruising and there's water on your knee. So I did this for four, five, six days and I just wasn't getting better. And it was actually feeling probably worse. So... It was the day of the team photos. It was very early in the season, and the team decided that uh, here was our squad, and we're going to have team photos. But before you say that, were you surprised that you made the team, given that you were kind of out of shape from being sick, and then you had a sore knee? Like, how did you make the team? Well, I, I, I it has to go, like I said, say they played against me, uh, coached against me for four years. I had my reputation. He had his own opinion of me. He knew what a healthy Cam Connor could do. And I had never thought that I wouldn't make the team. It was, uh, uh, that never even occurred to me. I knew I'd be on the team. I just had to get healthy. But it was pretty interesting. So it was a team photo. And I regret this today. My wife had said to me, she said, you know, there's something more wrong with your knee. You better go get an x-ray. So when I was at the rink that day and, the other guys were practicing, and the trainer said, no, no, you're fine. It's just uh, a bruise on the knee. Well, they had team photos that day, and so they flooded the ice after practice, and I put all my gear on, and I was the first guy on the ice for my individual shot. So there was 20, 25 guys, you know, that went out there for their individual shot, and then they would flood the ice again and and put the benches on the ice and line everybody up uh uh, in their in their positions for the team picture. So after I had my photo, I said, man, it's going to be at least another two hours. My knee's killing me. I remember saying to myself, you know what? I don't care if I'm in no other team photo. I'm never going to be living here. So I think I'm the only guy in pro sports that just buggered off before the team photo was taken. And I did go to the hospital, U of A hospital, and they, they did an x-ray, and I had crack right through my kneecap and so I end up coming out of there with a full cast you know all the way up the leg and uh, tried driving home like that it was pretty weird but anyway sure enough I had to put a cast on and uh, when our team photos came out the orders actually you know actually took my headshot and stuck me up in the left corner I still have a some of those pictures are pretty rare. It, it looks like you're an angel up in the, in the top corner of the picture. Well, that's exactly it. And the guys were all over me. They said, what, do you think you're God up there? What are you doing up there? Well, when the official Oilers team photo comes out now, I'm not in the picture. They've obviously taken me out of the corner. And so I didn't think I'd be here for, you know, when my career was over. And so when I see the team picture come out now, I... I feel kind of bad that I left before the photo was taken. And did management, uh, were they upset that you left and didn't partake in the photos? You know, they never said anything to me. I think the fact that I came back with a cast on my leg, I think they realized that, you know, I didn't go home and just watch TV. I, I went to the hospital and uh, started to heal. So how would you describe the, the crowds and the buzz in the city for this uh, new kind of new NHL team. I guess they were the uh, the Oilers were the only team that didn't have to relocate. So there was already a presence, but was there 
and excitement in the city? You know, there was, Edmonton has always been a sports town. With the world hockey, they were always supported very, very well. Always. Every world hockey team city always said, you know, we like the world hockey, but we want the NHL. That's really what we're hoping to get. And so when the Edmonton Oilers went into the National League, the city was very excited. And, you know, with guys like Gretzky and Semenko, and they brought in Kevin Lowe and Lee Fogland. So they had a good core, and Mark Messi was only 18. So the team was growing, and they were excited about that team for sure. There's no doubt about it, and they treated us very well. So you were injured with your cracked kneecap. How long did it take for you to heal? And do you actually remember the first team that you played against as an oiler? You know, typically when you have a cast on and you got to heal, it takes anywhere. Athletes heal a little bit quicker. So it was somewhere between four and six weeks I was back into the swing of things. I remember the first game back was against Chicago Blackhawks in Edmonton. I was so excited. I was rambunctious. So I was ready to play that aggressive style. So when we got back, one of my earlier shifts, I think, there was a guy who was a big defenseman named Keith Brown. He was a rookie that played with Chicago, high draft choice. And uh, he did something to me that I took exception to. So drop my gloves. He drops his gloves and we square off. And... Chicago Blackhawks captain was a guy named Terry Ruskowski. Terry was uh, about 170, 180 pounds. He was a good hockey player, a tough kid that never backed down from a fight. I played with Terry in the World Hockey in Houston. And so Terry has saw me fight many, many times. And what happened was, I believe that he knew when I took on Keith Brown. I didn't know if, who he was, that guy. I didn't know how tough he was, but, you know, you one way to find out. So when we squared off, I threw with my left and right. Like I said, I don't hold on. So as he was coming at me, I was right in the middle of throwing a punch right at him. And Terry Waskowski ran at me, and he banged me in the middle of me throwing a punch, which, you know, instead of hitting the guy in the jaw or in the nose... My aim went a little high, higher, and with my left hand, I can't, I throw him left and right. I threw with the left, and it hit him in the helmet. I broke my friggin' hand the first game back. I was so depressed. So I, I finally get back in the lineup, and now I'm out with a broken hand. You know, I had that cast on another four to six weeks, and now that was the second time I broke the left hand. I broke it the first time in Houston. That was the second time. So you finally come back from that injury. And did you feel like you had to play a little bit more tentatively because you had two pretty big injuries within, what, four months? And also, how many games did you get in after you returned? When I returned, I probably, as I remember correctly, if I remember correctly, I played about 22 games in. You know, I still had fights. I was a little bit leery. I did not want to break my hand again that season, although I ended up breaking it again that season. I played 22 games in a row, and I had almost a point-a-game average, but I know Glenn Sather, uh, God bless him, he's always been good to me. He wanted me to be a fighter. He didn't want me to be a goal scorer, and whenever I got a point or goals, I'd come to the bench, he'd never pat me on the back. 
he wouldn't acknowledge it. So I had like 20 points in 22 games. In fact, I remember when we'd be on the road now, we would have fighter meetings. Glenn would have us come up to his room and he'd get Semenko and myself and Peter Driscoll and probably another couple guys and he'd say, you got some tough teams, we need you guys stepping it up and fighting these guys. And and that never did go over well with me. My whole life, people just wanted me to fight. And I have a hard time playing the game of hockey. Just give me a regular shift and things would happen. You know, we were back in my, in Edmonton taking on the Montreal Canadiens, my former team. And I got myself into a little bit of trouble here. I was back checking with opponent from Montreal Canadiens. And he went all the way from his end right into the corner in our own end where the puck was. And so when you're the first guy back, you automatically become the centerman. Your centerman, who it was Mark Messi was my centerman, would automatically go to my defenseman and cover that point. And so I get in the corner and I get the puck and I look up and I see Bob Ganey and one other player coming full tilt at me. And if you know Bob Ganey, he throws a mean body check. He's pretty good at body checking. And I made a big cardinal mistake. It was nobody's fault but my own. I was getting ready for him to hit me, and I threw the puck without looking around the boards towards my side of the ice. And I can't even blame Mark. As Mark told me later, he apologized. He went to the other defenseman and didn't cover my side. That wasn't his fault. I I should have looked or froze the puck. I didn't. I threw it around the boards, and and then bang, you know, Bob and I collided. And then it went right to Larry Robinson, the puck. Robinson got the puck. Went to the top of the circle, took a slap shot, bang, in the net. That was my fault. I didn't look. Nobody else's fault. Well, after that, I think it was another 16 games, 15 games. Glenn just sat me on the bench. I might get one shift. So if you just stood on the ice and got off, that counts as a game played. So I got minimal opportunities out there. You just, you know, you knew that you were on the trading block he took that mistake I made very seriously, and I paid a price for it. Sure enough, after 36, 37 games with the Oilers, I still had the 20 or 21 points. I didn't pick up another point after that. And that's when, as I mentioned before, when I got traded to the Rangers, uh, I had heard it on the radio. and uh, It was something that, uh, you know, happened, and I had always hoped that the Oilers would uh, bring me back, but it never happened. So we're going to end the episode right here, but make sure to tune in for part two when Cam talks about his time with Mark Messier, Kevin Lowe, a little bit about Wayne Gretzky, his time with Glenn Sather, who is his coach, who he's mentioned in part one, and also some interesting stories about the owner of the Oilers at the time. His name is Peter Pocklington, and a funny story about a psychic who gave Cam advice not to do any business dealings with Peter Pocklington. So we'll see if Cam took that advice or not. And then he'll end the episode giving his thoughts on how he thinks the Oilers will do this year. So thanks for listening.